We're looking this morning at the conspiracy federation spoken of in Psalm 2, but we're going to look at some other texts as well. The first thing we discover is that Satan, and you look in your bulletin outline, Satan was not idle from the time of the flood onward. We learned in our last study that the great flood of Noah's day was God's remedy to Satan's corruption of the race. By reducing humanity to Noah and seven others in his family, God brought Satan's work back to square one. Satan had to begin all over again to corrupt humanity. God's patient had endured in the days of Noah for centuries. And read about the long lifespans of these people before the judgment came upon people. So they had time, time, time to repent at the preaching of Noah. And Jesus has listed Noah's day as the sign of what conditions will be like when he returns in judgment. So God takes one monumental event and Jesus uses it to describe the second coming monumental event. You remember that the people of Noah's day were going about business as usual. They're carrying on bartering and trade. They were marrying, giving their children in marriage. And they were taken by total surprise by the flood. That's because they didn't listen to the testimony of Noah. He was preaching them. He was telling them what was coming. But they were stopping up their ears, didn't want to hear it. We are presently sitting on this side of Jesus' promised return, again, centuries after it was made, while God waits patiently for His people to repent and believe in His Son and to become a part of His kingdom. During the centuries that have come and gone since Noah, what has Satan been doing in this post-flood era? Well, I can say to you, that he has not been indolent. He has not been asleep. He has not been uh, lazy and lax in his response. He may have been reduced to square one, but he has been extremely active, reinfecting the human race with his poison of hatred for God. And he'll use religion or non-religion, he'll use atheism, he'll use the mainline religions, whatever, to do this very thing. That brings us to our second point, Satan's attempt to defeat the will of God. Noah's descendants were given this mandate by God. Noah's descendants now. Listen to this mandate. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, and this is going to sound very familiar to you, be fruitful and increase in number. Same mandate that was given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Genesis 9, verse 1. And verse 7 says, Be fruitful and increase in number. So it repeats the thought again. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Genesis 9, verse 7. Simply put, what is being said to know is this. Have lots of children and recolonize the entire earth. A command necessary to repopulate the earth after the flood and to disperse the population so that there will be no central hub 
of humanity in but one geographical location. What happened? Turn to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 and following, where we read this. Now the whole earth, now this is just right after Noah's flood, now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain, the Hebrew says a wide plateau, plateau in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, now notice, and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, the first four verses. What was God's command? His command was, to the effect, move out, disperse, relocate into all the geographical areas, repopulate, the earth. But these people answered, No way! We like the plain of Shinar, and we're staying put right here. And what is more, we're going to build a city and a tower, NIV says, that reaches to the heavens. English Standard Version says, With its top in the heavens. That's better, a better translation, but it's still. Not the best translation. The idea, says the commentators who record this, was to build a tower high enough to provide a safe haven in the event of another flood. Does that seem reasonable to you? Would you build a tower on a plain, a plateau, if your goal was to establish great heights? Wouldn't it be more wise to build it on top of a mountain and thereby gain the advantage of topography plus the height of the man-made structure? These people weren't stupid. They were sinful, but they weren't senile. The Hebrew here in this phrase, a tower that reaches to the heavens, contains no verb. Uses a preposition, and there's four meanings of the Hebrew preposition. It can mean in, on, with, or by. Those four. All right, so let's apply it. If it's left to the trans... It, and by the way, it's left to the translators to supply the verb. It just gives the preposition. It doesn't give the verb. So that's, that's an important thing. In the heavens would imply height, and that's the way the translators have done this. He built a tower into, into the heavens. Okay. On the heavens might be viewed as on or about the heavens. A teacher might say, for example, to uh, his or her students, I want you to write a paper on the power of tornadoes. That would mean about tornadoes. So on can be used that way. By the heavens is redundant. An outside tower of any height would be by the heavens. 
with the heavens would indicate that the tower displayed a message containing or about the heavens. Guess what? Archaeologists have excavated such towers in this region of Mesopotamia. They're called ziggurats. It's a step-like pyramid with a large uh, base as the first step and then a smaller square and then another smaller square and then another smaller square. So it does have a pyramidal shape. And they discovered that these towers were all used for worship in pagan religions. Not a few dealing with the worship of the stars. Thus the expression, a tower on the heavens or with the heavens, would indicate depictions of the zodiac which have been discovered in some of these towers, these ziggurats in Mesopotamia. The Tower of Babel had a purpose for its builders. Look at verse 4, chapter 11 of Genesis. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's just plain defiance of God here, is it not? God says he wants us to move out and be scattered. We're not doing it. We're staying right here. And what is more... We're going to build a tower and we'll have our own worship. You know, a common religion acts as an adhesive to hold people together. Genesis 10, one chapter back, discusses Nimrod's exploits as a hunter, but also as a builder. And here's what we read. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Eric, Akkad, and so on, in, in, Shinar. Shinar. This plateau where they're building a tower. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh. Genesis 10, verse 10. If you know anything about the Ninevites, not exactly a God-fearing people. So, Babylon was the name for the Tower of Babel here in chapter 11. The word means confusion. And everywhere in Scripture, Babylon becomes a metaphor for the occult, for the worship of demons and other anti-God idols. We find it in the last book of the Bible. Here you have all this history. Old Testament history all the way through. You have all of the New Testament history all the way through. You get to the last book of the Bible and Babylon that's mentioned in the first book of the Bible is there. And here's what John writes. This title was written on her, speaking of, of the kingdom of Babylon, on her forehead. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Revelation 17, verse 5 and 6. Now this reference to the mother of prostitutes is not only a reference to physical immorality, which was often associated with pagan religions, 
but also to spiritual immorality, a people betrothed to God as their creator, who instead become unfaithful to him through idolatry. Let me read you a similar passage from Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. Hosea writes, Of my people they consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. See the idea of that? Hosea 4, verse 12. Paul in the New Testament writing to the Corinthians, another, you know, a Greek city that was full of idolatry. He writes to the church there, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. That's what I'm talking about. Not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19 and 20. Now these are heavy-duty clues here about the pagan religions of the world. So what happened at the Tower of Babel was an attempt by Satan to direct the worship of people to idols and in so doing make them star worshippers in defiance of God and to establish their own name, their own religion in protest to God's command to disperse and repopulate the earth. We aren't going to do it. We're staying right here in the plain of Shinar. We're going to build our own tower and have our own religion and worship the way we want to worship. How easily, it's almost laughable, how easily God dispatched this folly. Genesis 11, verse 7 and 8. These verses tell us that God determined to confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city, not only the tower, but the city as well. You see, if you cannot understand the person working next to you, it won't be long before you will seek out people of like language and like culture, and that's what God did. Oh, and by the way, when evolutionists are asked what is the reason for the various, if we all came from one you know, ape species or whatever. What's the reason for the multiple languages? Guess what? They go to Genesis chapter 11 to explain this confusion of languages as the answer. Sorry, evolutionists, you can't have it both ways. You can't have us coming up from the primeval soup and then God disturbing people with various languages that accounts for them. You cannot borrow from the Christian faith to support your evolutionary theory. Secondly, we note from our outline, Satan's attempt to kill off the people of God. Now this is getting more serious, isn't it? First, Tower of Babel, confuse God's plans, corrupt the people, make them in defiance of God and worshiping Him, have them establish their own religion so they don't have to go to God anymore. That's not enough. Now he's going to attempt to kill off the people of God. And there's a number of examples of this in Scripture. 
You can all recount the story of Joseph, who was instrumental in having his father and brothers move to Egypt to survive a famine that was affecting the whole region of that day. They settled in Goshen, a very wonderful place in Egypt, the prime territory. But if Pharaoh came to power, who knew nothing of Joseph's deeds of kindness to save Egypt, and so when the Israelites began to increase in number, the new Pharaoh determined, listen to this, here's what he says to his people, Look, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come. Here's this come again, you know. Let's get collectively about this. Come. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Exodus 1, verse 11 and 12. It's not, you know, things are turning sour now. Satan is getting more aggressive. Satan, however, had not reckoned on this outcome, but the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. Exodus 1 verse 13. I think many people died under the taskmasters of Egypt. Satan also did not count on the birth of Moses and his ascendancy in the royal court. He did not consider the call of Moses by God to lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage or the plagues that God would send upon Egypt to force compliance with God's will to release them. Each plague an assault on Egyptians' gods. We have that in Scripture. On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, God says. I am the Lord. Exodus 12, verse 12. Satan never dreamed that God would part the waters of the Red Sea. He would provide an escape for his people on dry ground and the subsequent drowning of all Pharaoh's pursuing army. Never counted on that. On other occasions, Satan used the greed and the bloodthirstiness of evil men to try to eradicate God's people. In the days of Judges, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites, and Gideon confronted them by God's command with a small band holding trumpets of all things and lights, lamps, encased in clay jars so he couldn't see the light. And upon a given signal, they were to break these clay jars and to reveal the light. And we read, when the 300 trumpets sounded, that's Gideon's trumpets, they smashed the, the clay jars. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp, that is the Midianites, to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled. Judges 7, verse 22. Gideon was victorious. But that was an attempt by Satan through the Midianites to wipe out Israel. In the day of Elisha, the king of Aram was gunning for the king of Israel. But every time he laid a snare to capture and kill him, Elisha, God's prophet, who was informed by God, 
would warn the king of Israel, and he always escaped. So, the king of Aram changed his strategy. He decided, I'm going to capture Elisha. I'll get what, I'll, I'm going to get my way. I'll, get, I'll capture this prophet. So, spies went out and they discovered Elisha's whereabouts. He was in the city of Samaria. And it says the king of Aram surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. 2 Kings 6, verse 15. Looked like Elisha and the people of God were sure goners, right? Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And as the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. 2 Kings 6, verse 16 through 18. By the way, you ought to read the rest of this story. Because the king of Israel says, Shall I strike them down, Elisha? Shall I kill them? They're blind. You brought them down. They're all blind. They can't see it coming. Let's get our swords out and wipe them out. Elisha led them back to their homeland and then asked God to restore their eyesight, which he did. There's mercy and grace in the gospel of God, not in Islam, but in the gospel of God. Now, are these accounts simply, let me ask it this way, simply the stories of battles which all people face when men go to war against others who are out for a power grab or a land grab? Or is there something more to these stories? Well, point three in your outline. Satan is in the shadows. To Isaiah, different day. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will... Take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. What's God saying here? He's saying Babylon has had this great success oppressing and ravaging people and in destroying competitive nations. But now, now, all that has changed. Isaiah goes on to write, The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. Oh, it rouses the spirits of the departed to greet 
You, all those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave. All along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. Isaiah 14, verse 3 and following. So God is prophesying to Babylon through Isaiah. And he's saying, you know, your day has come. You've had this wonderful day of great conquering. You've wiped out other nations. You've conquered kings. You've slaughtered people. You've expanded your land masses. If you know from your biblical history, Babylon was a pretty large empire at its peak days of Nebuchadnezzar. But now notice, now notice, if you're in Isaiah, chapter 14, now notice the change in Isaiah's taunt. He has been speaking to Babylon's leaders about their evil successes, their oppression of God's people, the swallowing up of nations. And then in verse 12 and following, he says, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? Latin Vulgate puts a proper name there, Lucifer, which in Latin means O morning star. How have you fallen, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You have once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, and they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew cities and would not let his captives go home. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 17. Verse 17 says, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring, her descendants, declares the Lord. Isaiah 14. Verse 22. What's going on here? Well, what is going on here is that God, through Isaiah, is addressing the real leader of Babylon, Satan himself, and says things of him that would not apply to a mere man. His boast, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the clouds. I'll make myself like the Most High. No mere man who's sane would be saying such things. But if it's Satan saying these things, then it makes a world of sense. This agrees with the account in Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels along with him. 
Now, we have another such account in Ezekiel 28 with the nation of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. A different prophet, Ezekiel, a different nation, Tyre. And here's what God says to his prophet. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I'm a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. If you know where Tyre was, it's off the sea coast. It's an island off of Palestine. But you are a man. You're not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you as wise as Daniel? He references Daniel in the Old Testament. There's no secret hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, by the way, Tyre was known for its merchant ships. It was in the Mediterranean. It was, this, it was a sea-going country. So that's what he's talking about. You've amassed gold and silver in your treasuries by your great skill in trading. You have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god... I am going to bring foreigners against you. That happened to be, by the way, Alexander the Great. He looked at the island and no one was able to ever defeat Tyre. It's out there in the Mediterranean Sea. Alexander says, I'm, I'm getting out there. I'm going to build me a causeway. And that's exactly what he did. He started bringing rubble and pouring it into the sea and building and building and building. And he went out there and he whipped Tyre. I'm going to bring foreigners against you and they will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Ezekiel 28, verses 2 through 8. And that's all said of a mortal. Yeah, you know, of a mortal person. You think you're a god, you're not. You're just a normal man. Yeah, you're full of pride because you've got all this money your merchant ships go everywhere. They bring all this opulence to your thing. And you thumb your nose at any nation because you're an island. And you think nobody can get to you. But again, listen to the shift in the rhetoric when we get to verse 11 and following. Ezekiel 28, verse 11 and following. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, and they're listed there. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Throughout your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And so I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God. And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now here again. God is speaking to and about the behind-the-scenes ruler of Tyre, Satan, 
And we learn that before his expulsion from heaven, he was on the holy mountain of God. He was ordained to be the guardian cherub for God. But his pride got the best of him. His wisdom turned evil. And in his expulsion, he landed on earth, one of the places being the Garden of Eden, which no mere mortal king of Tyre, not, not, it could never have been said of any of them. It is Satan projecting his evil through the king of Babylon. It is Satan exalting the pride of the king of Tyre. And so God addresses the source and not just the man wearing the crown. There's evil men in the world, folks. And some of these evil men are possessed by the evil one. And that's why they can do the exploits that they do. We have the same thing in the New Testament with Jesus who did the same thing with the demon-possessed man from Gerasene. Let me read it for you. He was a strong man, maniac, whom no one could constrain. And we read, when Jesus stepped ashore, he's coming out off of the boat in the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and he had been driven by the demons into solitary places. Now listen to this. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied. Now he's speaking here to the demon, not the man. Legion, because many demons had gone into him, and they, plural, begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So Jesus on this occasion expelled them into pigs, you remember. There was a herd of pigs there. And murderers that the demons are ran the pigs into the sea and drowned. Then we read, when the town folk came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Luke 8, verse 27 and following. The real battle, brethren, is not Babylon with its massive armies against God. It is not Tyre with its opulent wealth and cargo ships which make sinners rich and haughty. Nor is it super evil people with super strength. But it is, as Paul tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul is saying, saying, Satan is in the shadows. 
And that's where the battle is. And that's who we're fighting. We fight him when we proclaim the gospel. We fight him when we live the gospel, when we live for Christ. That's where the battle rages. It's not your next door neighbor that you can't get along with. It's not any of the material things. It's not the government per se. Not the president per se. The real battle is in the heavenly realms. So we see, point two, that we face a formidable foe. And in Psalm 2, it speaks of them coming out as an evil federation that is united for evil. The crucifixion conspiracy headed up by Satan does not work alone. The plans are made behind closed doors and in the whispers of the under-the-breath secrecy, but when the plan is in place, it is revealed that the conspirators are not alone. They are many. They know that there is strength in numbers. Even Solomon admitted, though one may be overpowered, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. Just common sense. Strength in numbers. What is more, our text indicates, Psalm 2 now, that the federation consists of the power brokers. Verse 2, it's the kings of the earth that take their stand. It's the rulers who gather together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. These are the men who command armies and control missiles and M1 assault rifles and torpedoes and other formidable weapons of warfare. These are the purveyors of nuclear bombs and intercontinental ballistic missiles. They are the Mussolinis and the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Chavezes and the Castros and the Kim Jong-uns of the world. And their agenda is always domination through subjection, subjugation. And God and his people are the primary targets in their sights. Why? Verse 3, Psalm 2. Let us break their chains, they say. Let's throw off their fetters. The Jews of Jesus' day put it this way. We will not have this man to rule over us. Referring to Jesus. Thus, as in our text indicates, they prove to be against the anointed one. The anointed one is Christ. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. We learned in our evening study last Sunday, this is the verdict, says Jesus. Light has come into the world, but men, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3, verse 19 and 20. They are united in their evil. But secondly, united or not, how easily they are dismissed, 
and dispatched by God. Let me ask it this way. Is God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, are they worried about this federation of evil? Ooh, numbers, ooh. Satan is surely the agent behind all this. Does Satan's collective resources, the fact that it is thousands to one, does that make the outcome doubtful? (laughs) Not in the least. Look at verse 3. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at this federation. He does more. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The whole idea of the federation is to prevent God from becoming the boss man who dictates life's outcomes. The federation wants to throw off the restraints of biblical morality, decency, and righteousness. It wants to profit from greed and prostitution and bogus spirituality and lies. It prefers the darkness of ignorance, intrigue, backroom politics. But God has a procurement. Here's what he says. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. I see what you're doing. Now you better know what I'm doing. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 10. What would be the logical and reasonable course of action if God Almighty declared to the rulers and the kings what he has done? He's established his king. He's already on the throne. You already missed out. You already were unsuccessful. Your federation is falling apart. What would be the logical and reasonable? He tells us. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That's a sign of respect. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you, you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In a word. God is saying, repent of your evil intent. Sue for peace. Take refuge in the one who has promised his people. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. John 10, verse 28. That's if we repent. That's if we forsake the Federation and yield to the almighty power of God. Well, What if you're going to remain a rebel? What if you don't want to give in? What if you think you have a fighting chance? Jeremiah answers. God speaking through Jeremiah. Listen to this. 
summon archers against Babylon. All those who draw the bow and camp all around her, let no one escape. Repay her for her deeds. Do to her what she has done. For she defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men will fall in the streets. All her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. See, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. For your day has come, the time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall, and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah as well. All their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet, yet, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is His name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that He may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. Jeremiah 10, or Jeremiah 50, rather, verses 29 through 34. Here's again a reference to Babylon, this world power of evil. Let me ask this morning, have you heeded God's warning? Are you, are you a wise person or foolish? Are you a repentant or a rebel? Satan's formidable federation is destined to crumble. It's destined to be pulverized under the iron scepter of God's crushing blow. Just like pottery made out of clay shatters into a million pieces if it's hit with a hammer. And Isaiah writes, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done, and proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Isaiah 12, verse 4 and 5. Evil Federation or no? Satanic empowerment or not. God who is the Lord Almighty sits in the heavens and laughs. Kings, rulers, don't you know? I've already installed my king. I've already enthroned him on the holy mountain. I've already promised him all the nations as his inheritance. He already has an iron scepter in his hands. And you are but clay. And you're going to come up against this person? This King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Now, you need to rethink your position. You need to sue for peace. You need to kiss that son in respect. Because let me tell you, not only does he have a love side to him, he has a wrath side to him. And if he pulls up the iron scepter, you're going to be pulverized into power. And that's just God's way of saying destruction is hanging over your head. May the Lord grant us this morning, us rebels, if there's any among us or in our internet audience, may he grant us repentance today as we kneel before the King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. There's only one God in the universe, and Satan ain't it. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word and the power of who you are, the Son of God. The scriptures teach God is one. There's not many gods. Although at the Tower of Babel they attempted to introduce idolatry through Satan's leading. They attempted to establish their own religion that excluded the only God there is from their thoughts. They went about to worshiping stars. Yeah, right. Illuminary bodies in the heavens created by you, but man are going to fall down and worship the sun and the moon and the stars as though they had some kind of divine power over humanity. Just inanimate objects, luminous orbs, viewed as God. That's the stupidity of our day and age. And it is the sinfulness of our day and age. Anything but God, anything will do but the one true God. I am amazed, O Lord, at your extreme patience and your extreme long-suffering, and yet that is one of the characteristics that you say of yourself. And you say that in reference as to why we are not destroyed. Peter says it's the long-suffering of God, it's the patience of God towards his people, towards his sinful people, that accounts for the fact that Judgment Day has not yet come. But it is coming, and there is an end to the patience of God. And I pray today that if we're rebels, if we're fighting in the Federation, and we think that numbers mean strength, and there's more of us than there is of the Christians and the people of God, and we're going to win and all of that, help them to see today, by your grace, their champion, their Goliath, has already been expelled from heaven and defeated. And Jesus is simply in the mopping up procedure. Bring us to faith today. Bring us to repentance today. Lest we perish like the kings and rulers of Psalm 2. 